0: Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley.
1: And I'm Peter Sir.
0: And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. On today's programme, we will talk about books by Olga Tokarczuk and Deborah Levy. And today's toaster challenge will be the poet and playwright Adam Wyeth. And
1: we'll be looking at the latest collection of poems by Charles Simic.
0: So, the coffee's made, the
1: toast is on,
0: and the books are on the table. Okay, so Ender, what have you got on the table for us this week? Well, I've brought in Things I Don't Want to Know by uh, the English writer Deborah Levy. She's also a prolific poet, playwright and novelist. And I've loved books by her, which included the Booker-nominated Swimming Home, also Hot Milk, which was also um, Booker-nominated. And again, the recently Booker-nominated The Man Who Saw Everything. So she's quite a prolific and really successful writer. What I don't want to know, um, the book that I've brought in, is the first in a three-part autobiography on, I suppose you could say, gender, writing, politics, philosophy. There's a great mix in there. It was originally published by a small independent London publisher called Notting Hill Editions. And they were committed to invigorating the essay as a literary form. And they came up with the idea of commissioning writers to respond to essays of distinction, essays that they admired. And Deborah Levy, she chose George Orwell's essay, Why I Write, which was published in 1946 to inspire this book, which I like so much.
1: It's probably one of my favourite Orwell essays, but I'm curious as to why she particularly chose it.
0: Well, I'm taking a guess, actually. Um, Orwell entertainingly declared, all writers are vain, selfish and lazy, and at the very bottom of their motives, there lies a mystery. Writing a book is a horrible, exhausting struggle, like a long bout of some painful illness. I don't know if you associate with that, Peter, but um, I certainly do do associate with it in parts. So Deborah Levy obviously was inspired by this quote, And uh, Oral divided his essay into four sections. They were sheer egoism, aesthetic enthusiasm, historical impulse and the final one was political purpose. So like George Orwell, I think Deborah Levy is very entertaining. She makes his categories her own chapter headings. So it's kind of a clever idea. But unlike George Orwell, she is not steadily organised. I think that's what makes it so interesting. It's kind of unpredictable. So the book is subtle, I suppose surprising. And Orwell also said that good prose is like a windowpane. And I'm thinking that it's possible he would have approved of Deborah Levy um, maybe surprised a little bit about the direction she takes her essay is a kind of mini memoir and it moves between three countries she flies to York at the beginning of the book because she's feeling so depressed and I love her honesty Um She's not afraid at all to talk about the kind of dishevelled state that she finds herself in. And she says that spring when life was very hard and I was at war with my lot and simply couldn't see where there was to get to. I seem to cry most on escalators at train stations. Going down them was fine, but there was something about standing still and being carried upwards that did it. From apparently nowhere tears poured out of me and by the time I got to the top and felt the wind rushing in it took all my effort to stop myself from sobbing. Now that makes it sound like a very depressing read but she goes on then to fly to Majorca to a place that she, she had been to before and she starts to discuss the writing life and her, her predicament but it also goes back in time to 1964 To South Africa, where she grew up, where her father was an ANC supporter and he was imprisoned. And there is actually a very moving scene where she talks about being a young child, making a snowman with him, and then the police come and take him away. But the book then moves forward in time to England where the family, when he's been released, they move to Finchley. And she describes her teenage years in exile really well, I think. So it, it, it's an amazing book, really, the way it covers so much in such a short volume as well, because I'm holding it to my hand here. You can see it's quite a slim book. And yet, like all great books, it has so much going on in it that really I found it quite compulsive to read it.
1: But a lot to say then about about. Being a writer, becoming a writer, also maybe about being a woman writer in particular.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's definitely very interesting for, for everyone to read. But particularly if you're a woman, she has a lot to say about being a woman writer. She says, to become a writer, I had to learn to interrupt, to speak up. To speak a little louder and then louder and then to just speak in my own voice, which is not loud at all. And I, I do think that she isn't a loud person, actually, and there is a subtlety to the way she speaks. For instance, um, listen to this bit. She writes about being a mother and she says some mothers go mad because the world that made them feel worthless is the same world with which their children fall in love. The suburb of femininity is not a good place to live, nor is it wise to seek refuge inside our children, because children are always keen to make their way into the world to meet someone else. Yet there had been many times I called my daughters back to zip up their coats. All the same, I knew they would rather be cold and free. And I think that's really brave and honest to admit that, that as mothers or as parents, we try to protect our children, but they want to move forward. And in many ways, it reminds me a bit of, um, do you know that poem, Peter, by Cecil J. Lewis, where he's watching his son go out into the playing fields? And um, he, he says at the end of it, he doesn't want the son to go out, but he knows that he has to release him and let him go. And at the end of the poem, he says, love is proved in the letting go. Beautiful lines. And I think really that that is exactly what Deborah Levy is speaking about there. So her book has wonderful philosophical moments, which really draw you in. It's a very compelling read. So I guess you'll be reading more of her autobiographies. Well, definitely. Um, Actually, I, I want to say as well that the book comes with a quote from the writer George Perec, and he says, one day I shall certainly have to start using words to uncover what is real, to uncover my reality. And this is what she does so well. And so I am really looking forward to reading um the follow on. To this, the second in her series of autobiographies called The Cost of Living. And it's inspired by Simone de Beauvoir's uh, book, The Second Sex. And I think it also encompasses that idea of seizing. The ultimate story to write your own story. And Deborah Levy herself has described these autobiographies as living autobiographies. And she says, hopefully, not being written at the end with hindsight, but in the storm of life. And I think, Peter, as a reader, I like storms more than I do a sensation of calm in books. So, yes, in answer to your question, I will definitely be reading Deborah Levy again.
1: Okay, so that was Things I Don't Want to Know by Deborah Levy, published by Penguin. But it's not the only book you've brought in today, is it?
0: Well, yeah, I've been reading also a book called Flights, by the Polish writer Olga Tokarczyk. I I was, I don't know if I was lucky enough, but I was definitely um, talking about this book already a few days ago when I went on RT, on the Brendan O'Connor show with Damien O'Reilly to, to talk about books which transport you elsewhere. And definitely this book, Flights, I mean, the title says it, definitely brings you to other places. I mean, Olga Tokarczyk, I have to admit, I hadn't actually encountered her, but we we had a very fine writer, a debut novelist, Marianne Lee on the podcast. Do you remember, Peter? Yes. And yeah, and she was encouraging us really to read Tukarchuk. And so she had recommended a book called Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by Tukarchuk. But I took it upon myself to read another book called Flights. It's really a novel about travel and it's travel in a very unusual way. And she's a writer that many people may not have read. But suddenly in 2019, she became very well known because she won the Nobel Prize. Uh, for literature, which was amazing. And also in the year before that, 2018, she won the Man Booker International Award for this novel, Flights, which I have on the table. Now, she had been a star in her own country, Poland, for the best part of three decades. She's a prolific writer Um, she's published nine novels, three short story collections. She's been translated into 30 languages. And I suppose what you could call her is kind of a European kind of humanist writer. She's a thinking, essayistic writer, a bit like Deborah Levy. That's why I thought it would be good to discuss them both together. And I really would like to praise her translator, Jennifer Croft, because let's face it, these are the people, the amazing people who get these books to us. So it is beautifully translated as well. Do you have a piece?
1: uh, I think you have a piece that that you could read for us.
0: Yeah, well I think she she really has echoes of Seybold, Milan Melankonder in her. She's she's playful, she she she's very imaginative. At the beginning of the book she kind of describes her her parents and she calls them their kind of travel was timid tourism. They would go to a place once a year and then they would return and they would show pictures to the friends. And she found this really kind of very boring. And she, I like the humour. She's a very humorous person. And she says, this life is not for me. Certainly, I did not inherit whatever gene it is that makes it so that when you linger in a place, you start to put down roots. I've tried a number of times, but my roots have always been shallow. The littlest breeze could always blow me right over... I don't know how to germinate. I'm simply not in possession of that vegetable capacity. I can't extract nutrition from the ground. I am the anti-anteus. My energy derives from movement, from the shuddering of buses, the rumble of planes, trains and ferries rocking. So she's kind of compulsive. And the book is a hugely expansive read. Like we, we, we travel from the 17th century where... She writes about a Dutch anatomist. He dissected and drew pictures of his own leg that had been amputated. And then she might move forward into the 19th century where I really liked a bit uh, where Chopin's harsh. She describes it travelling from Paris to Warsaw. And there's a very good piece as well. Sometimes she writes in the first person and sometimes she writes like mini short stories. And I really liked a bit where a man and his wife vanished while well, a man lost his wife and his child while he's on holiday in Croatia. And that sounds um, like something Oscar Wilde would say is quite careless. But in the book, it's actually quite harrowing. And um, you get a very strong sense of the area in Croatia where he's staying and the absolute horror of his wife and child going missing. So the book leaps kind of back and forth between f- fact and fiction. And like Deborah Levy, Takarcha can be deeply philosophical. And she splits her book into sections and they've titles like Seeing is Knowing, The World in Your Head or Cabinet of Curiosities. So I found it really quite an exciting reinvention of the. Novel and it comes with so many praises. But I loved the praise by the late Irish critic and brilliant reader Eileen Battersby. And she wrote in the Los Angeles Review of Books Flights is an international, mercurial, and always generous book to be endlessly revisited. Like a glorious, charmingly impertinent travel companion, it reflects challenges and rewards and I have to say I find this book Flights so rewarding and the the Guardian newspaper said that hotels on the continent would do very well to have a copy of Flights on the bedside table but I'd like to say Peter that I think every home should have it by their bedside table so I really firmly recommend Flights by Olga Tokarczyk and it's translated by Jennifer Croft.
1: Thanks, Enda. Um, so that was Flights by Olga Tokarczuk, and it was published by Fitzcarraldo Editions. And again, all details uh, will be available on booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. It's Toaster Challenge time again, and today's guest for the Toaster Challenge is Adam Wyeth. Adam was born in Sussex, he lived for many years in County Cork. And now he's based in Dublin. He's an award-winning and critically acclaimed poet, playwright and essayist, with four books published with Salmon Poetry. And his work ranges widely from Ireland to New Orleans, Naples and Zimbabwe. In 2019, he received the Kavanagh Fellowship. He's the author of Silent Music, which is highly commended by the UK's Forward Poetry Prize, and The Art of Dying, which was an Irish Times Book of the Year. In 2013, Salmon published his essays, The Hidden World of Poetry, unravelling Celtic mythology in contemporary Irish poetry. Adam's plays have been performed across Ireland, also in New York and Berlin. His play, This Is What Happened, was published by Salmon in 2019. And his next book, About Blank, will be published later in 2020. It's an experimental sequence which blurs genre, moves across poetry, prose and drama. It's kind of an immersive freewheeling text, which Paul Perry has called both a playful and deadly serious manifesto about how language shapes who we are or what we might be. And it's currently in production as an audio piece performed by actors Owen Rowe and Alwyn who are great actors indeed. And Adam is Associate Artist of the Civic Theatre in Dublin and works on ideas and research for the RTE Poetry Programme. Also teaches online creative writing courses at adamwyeth.com and Fish Publishing. His work has been praised for its exquisitely wrought ideas, subtlety and complexity. So you're very welcome to the Toaster Challenge, Adam.
2: Great to be here.
1: Adam, you've been described as having the the keen eye of an outsider. And I was just wondering, does being an Englishman in Ireland help or hinder your work?
2: I don't know. I, I've never really, I suppose, I've never thought of it like that. I mean, for me, it's, it's just writing, although I think I for me became, when I came to Ireland 20 years ago, I think I really, that's when I started taking writing seriously. I think before that it was just kind of fiddling about and not really sure what I was doing and reading mostly dead poets. You know, I was obsessed with the romantics and and that kind of thing. And then when I came to Ireland, I realised it was a living, breathing thing. And I think So that's when I was really switched on by it. And then I was introduced to things like Celtic mythology by Desmond O'Grady, you know, and learning about all these myths, which were very close to home, but I knew nothing about them. So it's been a strange kind of awakening, really, coming to Ireland in that it's... Next door to England, and yet it's very different in in many ways, you know. And I suppose I do. I mean, I don't know about rose tinted glasses, but I'm fascinated with how you know Ireland wasn't Romanised, didn't go through an industrial revolution, and how it retained something different to the rest of Europe.
1: I wonder, was was that because because you lived in the country? you lived you lived in County Cork.
2: County Cork, yeah. So we, yeah, Kinsale first, and then we kind of went a little further west every few years, and then kind of returned to Kinsale in the end, yeah.
1: And how does I mean, because now you now you've you've moved to the city, you're in you're in you're in Dublin. I mean, are they kind of very different experiences? I imagine. Yeah, very
2: much. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's yeah, it, yeah, no, it is. I mean, the west of Ireland is is I mean, I, maybe that's it as well. Being in that landscape as well that is sort of very untouched in many ways that it does awaken these sort of, you know, I don't know these ancient sort of stirrings you know and I suppose you know and then reading Heaney and all all of those things was sort of yeah just just amazing really but but yeah no I'm fa- and I'm fascinated by Irish writers and what Ireland has done with literature I think is extraordinary in the 20th century you know it, it is an, an amazing achievement you know to think that when you just pick three writers you know Joyce Beckett and Yates you know I mean it's it's amazing what they've done for for world literature, just to
1: go back to that notion of of, of being an Englishman in, in in Ireland, I mean, because that sense maybe of a of a, of a kind of double identity or or conscious, I mean, it's, it's it's there in some of the poems. I'm thinking of poems like Jock and Dohrish or the or the Long Run, where you feel, as I suppose, of, and, and and indeed anybody can feel like a like a like a blow. in maybe in, if if you're in the country and not from that particular kind of locality, how does that, if you like, inspire the work? Or and where does your native Sussex kind of does that does is that gone does it come into the picture
2: it I think it just naturally came in and yeah I mean definitely oh god I mean I remember I mean yes but I remember when I first came to West Cork like, like hitchhiking around and like you'd hear the guys speaking I thought they were talking in Irish but it was it was just the accent was so thick and fast that my ears I was like oh you know and I think, and I was kind of very much the suspicious. You know, what is this in, this Englishman, doing here? And it was only when I started writing for the Southern Star, which is a paper in Skibbereen, very old, uh, prestigious, uh, you know, paper, that, that suddenly the farmers looked at me differently. And it was almost like the, I wonder if it was like the curse of the poet or something. They were like, "Oh God, we, we better be nice to him now." Or, the, or maybe it was more that they could place me. I think there was always that that suspicion being there, and because I didn't go to church, and maybe you know, so you're not involved in, unless you go to you know, you have the GAA or or, or church or something like that you're kind of outside the community and then when I started writing for the Southern Star it was like oh okay we we can place you now that's okay you know so there was a there was a change there that was the, that was the end yeah yeah but the sussex I guess, I mean, it's interesting because I, 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 I like the poet, uh, and he's a minor poet, Robin Flower, and he came to, he was uh, an Oxford Don, I think, and, and, and specialised in Irish folklore and things, went out to the Blaskets and that, and that sort of thing. And I only realised when I came to Ireland that he was, that he had this interest in Ireland, you know, and so that kind of, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it just, it, it was just a fascination with coming to Ireland, I suppose, and Irish mythology. And I suppose the thing is, I'm I have Jewish blood and I've never... And I came from, you know, my parents got divorced. So in some ways, I feel like I was slightly out of it in England anyway. And I never felt completely at home. And in many ways, I feel more at home in Ireland now than England. And I think there's such an encouraging community of poets in Ireland. And that's been really, really wonderful.
1: And because uh, I'm thinking of other places that have been important to you as well, I mean Zimbabwe is one of yeah. is one of those. Can you say something something about that? How did that enter your your life?
2: Yeah, well, it just happened that I went travelling out there. I met some people uh, from s- some Southern Africans around '96, I think, and and they were leading this wonderful sort of commune life in in South Africa. And they were, and so I ended up going to South Africa and having these just wonderful experiences. And that was that was really eye opening as well. And, and yeah, so it, it and that that meant a lot to me, just travelling around and learning about Africa um, and, and South Africa. And I ended up meeting my Irish partner, Paula McGlinchey, in in Zimbabwe. She was living there at the time. So that was just... Uh, I was just a hippie travelling around, basically. Great thing to be. Instead of university, I I, I went travelling. That was my what I decided to do.
1: And Adam, I'm interested in the new work about Blank. Um, I'm interested in how different it is um, from the kind of work you've been doing before. I wonder not you tell us a little, a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, well, I suppose the last few years I've been writing plays and that's kind of opened up a whole new way of writing. And I've always been interested in the monologue and the duologue. So that, and I see playwriting as completely connected... To poetry in, in many ways but it's I suppose it takes me deeper into writing in a way that perhaps a page poem doesn't and I, and I I think the last few years I've been I felt maybe a little restricted by the page poem the poem that's you know usually one you know with it there's a very you know most poems are about a page long and and I find so yeah about blank was just an experiment really and it really, it just started there was no plan behind it and I mean, it was a bit of a joke, really, the whole title, about blank, because it was about nothing. And it was um, really just the speed writing stream of consciousness exercises, which I then sort of started piecing together. And I became i become more interested as well in in what T.S. Eliot called the mythic method, which is what he described. Joyce's the way he wrote Ulysses, whereas instead of some sort of a linear plot, you know, kind of running along that you use myth to kind of. Padded out, and so I started sort of working backwards in that way. And in fact, a lot of my writing is that—that it's almost this burst of sort of energy, um, short spurts usually, which is very, which is what a lot of poetry is anyway. And then kind of working out what I'm saying, what it's about, and piecing it together in that way.
1: Great. I mean I'm very I'm gonna be very interested to read it and I'm gonna be very interested to hear the the dramatization of it with Owen Fuery and, and Owen Rowe as well. And I, I'd love to talk more about about that and about the relation between playwriting and, and poetry, but time and the toast is against us. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna move on to the toaster challenge. And this is where we give our guests the length of time it takes to make a, a piece of toast to talk uninterrupted about a work that has in some way resonated with them. So, Adam, I'm putting the bread down. One, two, three, off you go.
2: Okay, I'm rereading Clarice Lispector's final novel, The Hour of the Star. Lispector is one of my all time favourite writers, a writer where you feel not just an influence, but an absolute affinity with the voice and work. Colm Tobin calls her one of the hidden geniuses of the 20th century, a brilliant, beautiful daughter of Russian Jews who fled to Brazil when she was young, extremely glamorous. She looked like Sophia Loren and wrote like Virginia Woolf. So The Hour of the Star is perhaps a little difficult to describe. On one level, we have a boy-meets-girl scenario which deals with themes of poverty, sexism and dreams of a better life. But on another level, the story is also about this angst-ridden, irritable narrator addressing the reader about the act of writing this story, The Hour of the Star. As well as the narrator's anxieties, we get all of these breathtaking philosophical passages woven throughout. It's like seeing backstage to a play or film set. And Lispector is a master of the interior monologue. Even on the title page, there are 12 other possible titles for the book. And I love how she's kept all of these titles there. Any writer knows how hard it can be landing on the right title at times. So after some preamble, the story begins, which centres on Maccabea, an impoverished 19-year-old girl, a hardly educated typist living in Rio de Janeiro. She's very impressionable and gets caught up with a boy who not particularly nice to her. But Maccabea is also really open. She's like this raw, open nerve with this nearly alien sensory perception. So you have these scintillating, psychological, even mystical elements rippling underneath, underneath it all. It's interesting to think you have Lispector as an older woman, she died not long after the book came out, writing as a male narrator who is writing about a young woman. So the whole thing has this weird Hall of Mirrors psychological sideshow to it. The book is full of insight, but it also explores the tragedy of poverty. Lispector is brilliant, perhaps a bit like Beckett, for bringing ignored characters living on the fringes of society centre stage. The writing throughout is exquisite. Every paragraph is striking and memorable. It's as if she's, wrote, she's written the whole book entirely in quotations. So I can't recommend The Hour of the Star enough. It's a book of rare beauty by an artist of rare beauty too. If I could pick out any paragraph from the book, this one goes, I have grown weary of literature. Silence alone comforts me. If I continue to write, it's because I have nothing more to accomplish in this world except to wait for death. Searching for the word in darkness, any little success invades me and puts me in full view of everyone. I long to wallow in the mud. I can scarcely control my need for self-abasement, my craving for licentiousness and debauchery. Sin tempts me, forbidden pleasures lure me. I want to be both pig and hen, then kill them and drink their blood. I just find... uh, the, this particularly poignant, poignant, as you know, Liz Spector was coming towards the end of her life while writing this, and yet the energy and freedom of the work is like an artist who's just starting out. And that's probably two minutes, is it? That's great. That's
1: toast is perfectly done, Adam. That's that's really really well done. That's a, it's a very interesting choice. Some people might be aware of her. you. You also were aware of her from a, an earlier point because this, you said rereading. So you, had, you just you read this obviously.
2: Yeah, I actually been teach. I te- I'm, yeah, I'm teaching her for a creative writing workshop. So I went back to it. But I've only been aware of her for the last four years, four or five years.
1: And yet she's an enormously influential. I mean, particularly in yeah. Brazil. I mean, she's she's a massive yeah. presence, and kind of a strange. I mean, because she, she, she writes. The Brazilians often say about her. they find her difficult, like they find her prose difficult, and some people say that it's actually very hard to translate her. So I don't know if the experience of reading that book in English, if you notice that that's kind of an issue in any way but
2: I don't I mean I don't speak Portuguese but but I, I have come across like a few different you know obviously yeah some different translations and I've got like an ebook, and I've also got a paperback version of it as well so there is there is that but I it was interesting because my students were saying she's quite difficult but I mean I, I find the prose so sort of it's so conversational and it's so it's so free in many ways and and it's almost like it's almost like she's not writing in a way and i think i think a lot of people found that with her and elizabeth bishop uh, yeah. the poet was one of her translators of her That's short right. stories and she was like this enigma in many ways because she wasn't the typical literary person by any means and yet you just and yet the the craft and and you know when you so when you first look at it you think this isn't literature in many ways because it is so raw and extraordinary and yet yeah it it is obviously Beautifully crafted,
1: because she was an extraordinary writer of, of stories as well, I and mean, and and they're they're collected. I think they're available in in England. I think Penguin have a an edition mm-hmm. of her stories, and and they are great as as well. Yeah. But she because she she yeah. started off really. I mean, she she was in her early twenties, I think, when she was, like she was only twenty four or 23, 24, when her first novel came came out.
2: Yeah, what one was that? Breath of Life. What's the name of that? I can't. Remember. Uh, Near the Wild Heart. Near, oh, that near to the wild heart. That's it. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I
1: strongly uh, recommend anybody to to search her out, Clarice Lispector. I think they're well worth reading yeah. the novels, short stories, and indeed this journal. I remember reading years ago yeah. a collection of, of journalism that she that she brought out that was also fun, uh, fascinating. Yeah. So, Adam, thank you for that. That's, that, that was a great, a great choice, and thank you for undertaking the the toaster challenge.
2: My pleasure, it's been great.
1: Just any inf- information about Adam if you if you're curious it's com, and we'll have details of both Adam's books and Clary's the Clarice Le Spectre choice on booksforbreakfast.budsprout.com. So, thanks again Adam Wise.
0: And now for some poetry. So, Peter, I know, I can see that you have a collection there on the table by a poet that I know we're both huge fans of, not an Irish poet, um, a poet from America. So would you tell us a bit about who this poet is and why why you've brought him in today?
1: Yeah, well, the book I've got is Come Closer and Listen, which is a new poem by Charles Simic. And uh, yeah, it's funny because I, I just dived into a bookshop for the first time in a long time last week and I came out uh, with a couple of books and this is uh, one of them.
0: Yeah, um, a new collection by Charles Simic. That's fantastic. Yeah. He's written so many books. He's so prolific. So will you would you tell the listeners a little bit about him?
1: Yeah, it's true. He's, he, he has written a lot of books and he's he's kind of won all the awards you can think of. The You know, the Pulitzer, MacArthur Foundation, Genius Grant, all that kind of stuff. He was the US Poet Laureate and... You know, I've seen him described as one of the most kind of visceral and unique poets writing today. And that's probably not too far off the the mark.
0: Yeah, I know.
1: And where is he actually from, Simic? Well, well, he's not. I mean, he's he's obviously lived most of his life in America. He didn't uh, initially grow up there. He was born and spent his, I suppose, lots of his early formative years uh, in Belgrade. Mm -hmm. And he was there at kind of the end of the Second World War and there until... A few years after that, living in very difficult conditions mm. and, you know, very an atmosphere of kind, of kind of violence, desperation, starvation. And he describes this brilliantly, actually, in his prose book, The Life of Images, which is his selective prose, uh, which I was yeah. also reading kind of at the same time. And that opens with a piece called... Why I like certain poems more than others, and it's actually about the family starving in Belgrade, and selling off the furniture and clothes to survive, culminating in his mother selling his father's black tuxedo for a pig. Mm. So you know, so so he he was actually quite you know he was fifteen when they travelled to Paris, and after and a year after that they managed to get um, to America. So you know, so that 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 is very much part of
0: yeah. Yeah, an his, amazing of, background. Work, yeah. So, Peter, yeah. would you say then he's, is he, would you call him a European poet or an American poet or both perhaps? I think, yeah, it's a good question because I think, yeah, he's both. I mean, he's an
1: American poet with a, a Slavic voice, if you like. I mean, the voice mm-hmm. in the poems is very much colloquial American, but the underpinnings, if you like, the accents, the shadows, the black and often mm-hmm. surreal humour are very much European with an old world kind of fatalism and a distrust of grandiosity. So that ruined European world never left him. It's a constant presence. The critic Vernon Young put it very well, I think. His Yugoslavia, he said, is a peninsula of the mind. He speaks by the fable. His method is to transpose historical reality into a surreal key. He feels the European yesterday on its pulses. I think Mm. that's a brilliant description. Yeah, brilliant Um,
0: description. Yeah, and there's a strangeness to his work too, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, it's, well, there is
1: a kind of, if you like, a kind of cultivated odd- oddness in 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 a way that his way of looking at the world as if it's never been properly seen before. I mean, some of the poems will be well known. Like, For instance, Fork would be an early poem that yeah. might be familiar to people. This This strange thing must have crept right out of hell. It resembles a bird's foot worn around the cannibal's neck. As you hold it in your hand, as you stab with it into a piece of meat, it is possible to imagine the rest of the bird, its head, which like your fist is large, bald, beakless and blind.
0: Mm, I absolutely love that poem. It's well known to me and it really is an excellent way of seeing how poetry, the power of poetry is in comparing one thing to another. So the fork and the bird, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, but it's also saying, you know, he
1: says, you think a fork is an ordinary thing? Well, I'll, sh- I'll show you. <laughs> I'm um, going to show
0: you, and, that's right. You know, and you like, you, you like the poem Shoes as well, don't you, Peter?
1: My shoes, yeah, because, again, it's typical of his early stuff. I mean, it's kind of, You know, shoes, secret face of my inner life, two gaping toothless mouths, two partly decomposed animal skins, smelling of mice nests. My brother and sister who died at birth, continuing their existence in you, guiding my life towards their incomprehensible innocence. You know, it's 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 yeah. it's marvellous. He says, like, I want to proclaim the religion I have devised for your perfect humility and the strange church I'm building with you as the altar. You know, it's that kind of thing. It's like yeah. you can't take anything for granted. Things of their own lives, which we ignore at our peril, but also minds of their own secret labyrinths, which also we shouldn't ignore. But he said himself, and I think it's, it's very much true of, of his work, when you start putting words on the page... An associative process takes over and all of a sudden there are surprises. All of a sudden you say to yourself, my God, how did this come into your head? Why is this on the page? I just simply go where it takes me.
0: Yeah, brilliant quote. And it's so true, isn't it? The surprises when when you're trying to write and something comes that you just didn't expect. It's brilliant. Yeah, That's a really good yeah, quote, Peter. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I think it is. Um, were there
0: any Were there any other books or poems by him that you, that you really enjoy that you'd like to share today with us?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's loads. I love one of my favourite poems of his, uh, relatively early one, is is Caron's Cosmology. Oh yeah, and it's there. You know, with only his dim lantern to tell him where he is, and every time a mountain of fresh corpses to load up, take them to the other side where there are plenty more. I'd say by now he must be confused as to which side is which. I'd say it doesn't matter. No one complains he's got their pockets to go through. In one a crust of bread, in another a sausage. Once in a long while, a mirror or a book which he throws overboard into the dark river, swift and cold and deep.
0: Oh, that's absolutely brilliant to hear. But listen, we haven't spoken about the new book. So tell us, what is his new book like? Well, you know, it's a funny thing actually with
1: Simic because you know, new, old, there actually isn't much difference. You read an early poem and then one from this new book, Come Closer and Listen, and there's no real difference. I mean, (laughs) the style, yeah, because it kind of goes against everything we're always taught. You know, the style and the voice have been fixed a long time ago and they don't really alter. Mm. So like in some poets this Would be, I suppose, a liability. I mean, because you're supposed to, I mean, everybody tells you, you know, uh, you're supposed to grow and develop, isn't yeah, that, isn't mature that, isn't, as know, a writer, you know, that's so, yeah, true, yeah, <laughs> mature, you know, and all that. And so, you might be annoyed if someone said to you, you know, your work shows absolutely no development. Mm-hmm. But Civic, because I know, he's very much sui generis, and because the manner maybe is so striking, he can actually get away with it, he can run the risk, if you like, of seeming repetitive, and so. There is inevitably more of an emphasis on mortality, you know, again, without being portentous about it in any way.
0: Yeah, that's good. It sounds so interesting. He has such a striking voice. And I think readers as well who love him are probably going to be consoled by the fact that you still have, you know, the usual Simic voice there, which is really good. But listen, can you give us a flavour of the new work?
1: Well, yeah, here's maybe from the title poem, Come Closer and Listen, uh, which Mm -hmm. begins, I was born... Just actually going back now to that childhood we were talking about. Yeah. I was born, don't know the hour, slapped on the ass and handed over, crying to someone many years dead in a country, no longer on a map. You know, so that gives a, a, yeah. a, a, bit, a bit of a flavour. And then, you know, blessed or cursed, who is to say? I no longer fret about it. Since I've heard people talk of a blind lady called Justice, eager to hear everyone's troubles, but don't know where to find her. And ask her the reason the world treats me some days well, some days ill. Still, I'd never be the first to blame her. Blind as she is, poor thing. She does the best she can. So, I mean, again, that's sort of typical of 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 the manner. But yeah. there's always a sense, you know, of, and I, and I think probably goes back to that uh, traumatic experience of of, of of life. There's always a sense that something terrible is, always happening somewhere in the world, even if we seem to be innocent Mm -hmm. of it. Like, for instance, the poem called After the Bombing, a great city lay reduced to ruins as you stirred in a hammock, closing your eyes and letting the paper you were reading fall out of your hand to the ground, where the afternoon breeze took an interest in it and swept it back and forth across the lawn towards the neighbouring woods, so the owls can study the headlines as soon as night comes and shriek from time to time, making mice shake in their beds, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not, I mean, I mean what's beautiful or, or worth preserving, the poems often ask. And the answer is often to be found in, you know, immediate experience, the, the keenly relished here and now. He's a wise man who forgoes the future and savours the here and now, bent over a bowl of gnocchi uh he says or or bread, cheese and some black grapes ought to be enough and a bottle of wine to toast the crow's puzzle to find a sitting here which is from the last poem in the book or or an equally relished memory you know from 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 for instance, a poem like meditation in the gutter of things beautiful. Things fleeting, like the scent of summer night at the corner of Christopher and Bleecker, silent and deserted, as I stood leaning against a mailbox where years ago I dropped a love letter and never heard back. When a cat walked up to me, one of its paws raised, as if to call my attention to the cunning threads by which our lives are rigged.
0: It's mm. oh, really beautiful poetry. And so, are, are there other ones you'd recommend, Peter? I mean, it sounds like there's a feast of poems. in Yeah, this connection. I mean, I mean,
1: yeah, like, but I, again, it's, it's there's something very ordinary. I mean, you know, like he he has a great essay in that book I mentioned, The Life of Images, called The Trouble with Poetry, and he mm-hmm. says to himself, he says, "I'm the mystic of the frying pan and my love's pink toes." And he says the idea is, that it's it's possible to make astonishingly tasty dishes from the simplest mm-hmm. uh, in, ingredients. You know, I mean, that that's kind of um what he's what he's at actually mm. if, I would, if you don't mind i might just because um, he, he says something interesting again just at the very end of that essay he says you know that reminds me my great grandfather the blacksmith philip simic died at the age of 96 in 1938 the year of my birth after returning home late one night from a, a dive in the company of gypsies he thought they would help him fall asleep but he passed away like that in his own bed with the musicians playing their favorite songs." That explains why my father sang gypsy songs so well, and why I write poems. Because, like my grandfather, I can't sleep at night.
0: Oh my God, you that's know?
1: an amazing story, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. But it's but it gives you some insight into into the kind of there's a, you know, that kind of dark sort of comedy. But some, I mean, there's some stuff I wouldn't want to give the impression that they're you know it's it's grim. I mean, it's very funny. Like I, I love one called Bed Music. You know. Our, our love was new, but our bed springs were old. On the floor below, they stopped eating with forks in the air while we went on playing our favourites. Shake it, baby, slow, boogie, shout, sister, shout. That was the limit. They called the cops. Did you bring beer? We asked the men in blue as they broke down the door. <laughs> so, you know, or, you know, just like a, a nice one, like, you know, he's thinking about the great kind of poetry of the past and, and, and he's thinking about Petrarch. And, and he, he has a poem which he calls the Many, the Many Lauras, which finishes, you know, Petrarch, you only loved one Laura and wrote hundreds of poems to her. I loved three, but only wrote one. And it's not even a good one.
0: <laughs> Very good. So distinctive voice. But to go back to mortality, there's another poem, Late Night Quiz, that you wanted to just mention, Peter, didn't you?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is where he's, I suppose... It's one of his sitting-up-late-at-night-not-sleeping poems. And he's kind of, I suppose, confronting the ogre of mortality straight on. Yeah, He says, um, Is Charles Simic afraid of death? Yes, Charles Simic fears death. Does he pray to, to the Lord above? No, he fools around with his wife. His conscience, does it bother him much? It drops in for a chat now and then. Is he ready to meet his maker? as much as a squirrel crossing the road. Like an empty beer can being kicked by some youth high as a kite, out of one dark street into another, he stumbles and falls in the meantime.
0: Very good. So thanks, Peter, for that. Peter was talking to us and reading some poems from Charles Simic's new book of poems, Come Closer and Listen, published by Eco Press. And the prose book that Peter was talking about is The Life of Images Selected Prose of Charles Simic, published by Eco in 2015. And as usual, all details of the books discussed will be on the podcast notes at www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout. Um, .ie. I'd like to finish up by reading a poem from um, the collection which Peter Peter was speaking about. It's a poem called Last Picnic. And Peter, you'd mentioned it earlier. I just thought it would be nice to read it at the end. Uh, Fall is arriving, as Simic uh, calls it. Autumn is on its way. And I just really love the sense of place in this poem by Charles Simic. So I'll give it a read now. Last Picnic. Before the fall rains arrive, Let's have one more picnic, now that the leaves are turning colour and the grass is still green in places. Bread, cheese and some black grapes ought to be enough and a bottle of wine to toast the crows, puzzled to find us sitting here. If it gets cold, and it will, I'll hold you close. Night will come early. We'll study the sky, hoping for a full moon to light our way, and if there isn't one, we'll put all our trust in your book of matches and my sense of direction as we go looking for home. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again?
1: Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this uh, podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com.
0: And yeah, so... We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.